0: I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guests today are Drs Cassera Diet and Natasha Holmes. Dr. Cassara Diet is a 31-year-old cisgender black West Indian woman who is a licensed clinical and forensic psychologist in Massachusetts. She is an immigrant intersectional feminist and social justice oriented clinician and her unique story informs her clinical work. As a person with multiply intersecting marginalized identities, Dr. Diet does not get to hide some of these more important aspects of her identity. And so, though she is an analytically oriented therapist, she believes that the practice of being blank is a concept that did not have therapists who look like her in mind dr diet maintains a private practice part-time called cup of tea counseling where she sees children adolescents adults and families she specializes in working with diverse abled individuals specifically autism, developmental delays, and chronic health conditions. She also has extensive experience working with sexual trauma. Dr. Diet spends the other portion of her professional time working for a juvenile court clinic, completing comprehensive psychological assessments for youth and their families, who make contact with the system. Dr. Diets additional services include individual and parent coaching, schools consultation, and organizational consulting on race issues. You can follow her at Instagram at ctcounseling. Dr. Natasha Holmes is the founder and CEO of And Still We Rise, a group practice with the mission of increasing access to quality mental health care for communities of color by specializing in providing services to women and people of color seeking culturally informed care and providing individualized coaching and support to therapists of color who aim to develop their own private mental health practices. Dr. Holmes is a licensed psychologist, consultant, and life coach who works from a psychoanalytically and trauma-informed black feminist and womanist perspective while integrating cognitive behavioral and dialectical behavioral theories. She serves on the steering committee for the Boston Chapter of Reflective Spaces, Material Places, and is a Multicultural Concerns Committee Scholar for the American Psychological Association's Society for Psychoanalysis and Psychoanalytic Psychology. For more, visit the text accompanying this episode for links. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious... Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry From Tripart Books, 2019 For more, please visit our publisher's website, That's Trapart.net That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N Dot com, forward slash V-A-N-E-S-S-A 2-3-C-A-R-L Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can also visit my website, sinclair.net or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode.
1: Um, So I guess part of how I'm organizing myself is around this question that you were posing, Vanessa, on how did you find yourself in this field? Um, I was also thinking about my experience within the psychoanalytic community, my experience as a psychologist kind of more broadly, too. So that's what I'm, I've, I am anchored around. And with that in mind, I'll share a bit about how I ended up here. Um, so I started graduate school in 2010, so 10 years ago, which in the grand scheme of things isn't that long ago. But in my head, that was a long time ago. <laughs> years I cannot believe it's already been 10 years but um so I'm from actually before I even say that I'm from Seattle um my family's in in Seattle I um what could I say briefly about my family I well so I guess since it's a podcast I will acknowledge it so I'm a 32 year old black african-american cisgender woman Um, I'm a first-generation college student, so I'll acknowledge that, too. Uh, I come from a working-class family. Um, I'm a descendant of slaves. I will acknowledge that, too, in the space. And so so, yes, there's probably a whole story on how I even ended up as a psychologist, but I'll skip that piece and just go to 2010. So I moved from Seattle to Oregon, and I started in a graduate program. I later learned that I was the first African-American woman to graduate from that graduate program, which I was not aware of at the time. Um, But I think that speaks to how few folks of color there were in the space. Um, And for me to survive, that's the word that comes to my mind, is actually survive the space. It required coordinating with a few folks of color who were there. Um, other like students of color who were there. And I also had a mentor, um, Sandra Jenkins, who was critical to my development, growth, becoming of a, of a psychologist. Um, but when I started grad school, I went to a clinical psychology program and my plan was to, um, study forensics specifically. So I was on the forensic track and to train to work in the bureau of prisons um doing evaluations and such and put in my 20 so work for the government put in my 20 years retire and that was going to be my career as a psychologist and in my head that's what it I, i tied that that's what i understood as like a stable work and um like, a promising career at the time. This is what I understood. Not, yeah. Oi. And my relationship to psychoanalysis, though, because I, I didn't understand psychoanalysis as something that would allow me to make money or of space that had folks who looked like me in it, I, um, like, had this side relationship with psychoanalysis. I would, like, take classes on the side or go to talks on the side, or Sandra actually, Sandy, she was, she is psychoanalytically oriented. So that was like the only black woman I saw doing this kind of work. Um, I, yeah, take classes, go to these talks that would happen once a month, like at people's houses. I was in analysis at the time too. And so that was, it was all stuff I did on the side, but I didn't think I could actually make a career out of it or anything like that. because when I thought of it, I would think of like old white men and wealthy people, which isn't like a population I was interested in working with or a community that I thought uh, I was a part of. Um, yeah. So in in twenty like thirteen or twenty fourteen somewhere around there, I had a supervisor who told me that I was thinking like a slave. Now, this was a little harsh at the time, <laughs> and I was insulted by it. I remember telling Sandy that the supervisor told me that, and he it was a Black man who owned a uh, group practice, so that was important, because it would probably mean something very different if a white man was telling me I was thinking like a slave. But I told, remember telling Sandy about it, and she... Uh, She laughed and found it quite entertaining. Um, But it felt like an important moment in my career and moment um, in my development. What I came to understand, what he was saying, was that I was underestimating myself, and I had a pattern of underestimating myself. Um, And yeah, and I still kind of go back to that. and I'll probably say more about it later, but anyways, and then like 2014, I moved to Boston for my pre-doc internship, which was at the Center for Multicultural Training and Psychology um, through Boston University, Boston Medical Center, and that was quite an experience, quite a move, completely cross-country, a pretty, it was a pretty difficult time. I feel like that year was a tough year. Um, I mean, pre-doc is sort of a tough year in general, I think, for a lot of folks, but uh, yeah, that was a tough year. But it was around that time that I really started getting into psycho, the psychoanalytic community even more. Um, so for my postdoc, I went to BIP, the Boston Institute for Psychotherapy was, was a psychoanalytic, was, I, I, it closed, actually. And, but I trained there for a bit. I trained at the Massachusetts Institute of Psychoanalysis for a bit in their um, like PGFP program. Um, and I was working community mental health and um, helped to get together or establish this reflective spaces, material places, Boston group, Boston um, chapter of the group. And so this is sort of what, that feels a little, I don't know how, cohesive that is or if that all makes sense but this has sort of been like some of my journey some of my experience um I began teaching and I was working community mental health around that time I yeah and then that brings me up to like 2017 which is when I quit all of that and then made this leap into um, a group practice so like for-profit type of work which I hadn't been doing so when I think of my um, experience within the psychoanalytic community or experience as a psychologist. It really, everything kind of started coming together in 2010 when I was in graduate school and I have like these bits and pieces of like my experience of being a person of color, um, of planning to do work in like the sort of forensic setting and what that meant to me, what my relationship with psychoanalysis was and how that shifted with time. Um, yeah, so I'm thinking of all of these kind of themes that eventually come together a bit more, but, but yeah, does that sort of make sense or? Yeah,
2: yeah for sure. Yeah.
1: So, and that's yeah. where
2: you met Casera.
1: And that's where I met Casera. But before I talk anymore, I do not know, Casera. if you want to share a bit.
3: I was saying that, uh, it was interesting listening to you, Natasha, um, because I was remapping my journey as you were speaking. Um, And one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about lately is um, just feeling like everything that's been happening in the world makes it hard to think clearly in general, but also about my story and my narrative. I've been having a really difficult time. Um, So it's a, pretty unique experience that I'm having right now being like oh yeah I have memories about these things (laughs) Um, but I uh, am recently 31 (laughs) uh, years old uh, cisgender female um, West Indian Um, I often will just say black because to white Americans that doesn't mean a whole lot sometimes (laughs) Um, but I am an immigrant so I was born in Trinidad um, and came here pretty young, uh, and it was the sort of usual story of we're coming here for a better life, we're coming here for education, uh, and I didn't understand all of the nuances of that at the time, um, obviously, and so school and education and all of that was sort of always front and center, um, And I was the first person in my family to go to college. And um, it it wasn't necessarily a super conscious decision. It was just sort of like, okay, this is the next step. Um, And when I was in undergrad um, in Virginia Beach, which was the farthest south that I had been (laughs) at the time, um, I majored in criminal justice, psychology, and philosophy. And so what I find interesting is this very similar forensic path that Natasha and I have. Um, And at the time I thought I was going to be a lawyer um, and I was going to go to law school. And that was my my focus. Um, and I was like, I'm going to help people. I was very interested in, in the criminal mind and understanding human behavior. But I didn't really have a conceptualization yet, at least, of psychology as a thing I could do. So the major in criminal justice came first. And then as I was taking psychology courses, I was like, oh, this kind of feels a lot more aligned with where my mind has been moving and working. And so then that's when I started thinking about how do I marry these two things um, and declared my major uh, in psychology as well. And was thinking I'm going to work in prisons or <laughs> something. So very, very similar. And, you know, I think that it's hard to talk about this interest in forensics without. The way in which um, people of color, black people specifically, you know, um, are often thinking about how we're giving back to our community. And obviously so many um, black people, particularly black men, are concentrated in our prison systems. Um, And so for me, I was thinking, how do I give back? but how do I also make a life for myself and how do I do that in a way that's interesting? So these are all of the things that were going on in my mind. Um, But I didn't know anything. I didn't have any way of grounding the idea of graduate school because no one in my family had ever done that before either. (laughs) Um, So I just started applying to a bunch of different programs. I applied to psychology programs. I applied to philosophy programs. So I applied, um, program at oxford um and so i kind of landed (laughs) um as it were at my grad program in 2011 and still with this mindset that i was going to do forensic psychology work Um, and i think it was my second year of grad school that they had somebody to come in and talk with us about what we were thinking we wanted to do in the future and I was like, well, I want to have a a hybrid of a private practice where I'm like working with people individually, but also like working in the system, like doing assessments. So I was becoming really interested in psychological assessment at the time. And this woman, she's a white woman. She said, that's not possible. And I was like, <laughs> um, and I, I felt I was very taken aback because My feeling was, like, she's supposed to be here to encourage us about the paths that we're taking. And uh, Natasha knows me. I'm a very stubborn, (laughs) very direct individual. And my response to her was, like, so what are you doing here? Like, if you're here, you're supposed to help us kind of figure out how we can get to what we want to do. And your answer is, like, you can't do that. Then why are you here? There are plenty of men who are doing this. I know that there are because some of them are my professors. So, like, why? Why not me? Um, So I kind of had this thing fixed in my mind for a while, but I didn't really have any great conceptualization of how I would get there. Um, And similar to Natasha, I had um, two very important mentors. I mean, I have lots of mentors, but um, Monisha Akhtar, who is a psychoanalyst. She's a... um, child and adolescent and adult psychoanalyst, um, and she's Bengali, uh, I started doing research with her and, um, that's when I started to really get an idea of like, oh, this is how I can shape my future. Um, and really under her mentorship, I got a lot of just inspiration for my future. Um, and then I had another mentor, Marjorie Bosk, who I met with pretty regularly and would share my cases with and try to get Get more than what my on site supervisors were offering me um, and just trying to figure it out along the way. Um, so I dabbled in various forensic things, working in community mental health settings. I did college counseling for internship as well, and also worked at a rape crisis center. So I did a lot of different things. Um, and then I got this postdoc. Um, at Cambridge Health Alliance, Harvard Medical School, doing uh, rotations on the inpatient child and adolescent units. Uh, Because by then I had sort of realized, oh, I really like working with children and families as well. And um, did a developmental assessment rotation too. And, yeah, when I landed at the company where we met, um, I just needed a job. Um, And... I interviewed and I was like, okay, this seems okay. Um, And that's where I, how I ended up at a group practice. So it wasn't even part of what I had conceptualized that I would be doing. Um, But that's where I met Natasha. So so that was 2017. (laughs) Um, And I think I forgot to say that... um, my whole time during graduate training, I was pretty involved in the psychoanalytic community. Um, So both my mentors were analysts um, and I was our graduate student representative for our local chapter of division 39. So I was doing programs. I was generating our flyers for those programs. I was helping with advertising. So I was doing a lot um, every week, every month. and also presenting. I had presented at the American Psychoanalytic Association um, as a student and also volunteered uh, as well. Um, and that's how I sort of made my way into these spaces is through volunteering. Um, but we can talk about how sometimes I got mistaken as being sort of like the hotel help rather than a student who's attending the conference. That that was something that occurred frequently in these spaces. Um, so there were a lot, There was a lot of, I would call it violence, a lot of violence I felt that I experienced and contended with, but felt that psychoanalysis lent language to my experiences of migration that I didn't have that really resonated with me. And that's why I have always held on to it as something that's been important in my work. Um, so yeah, I think that's a, a good place to segue, I suppose. (laughs) I don't know if you want to talk more about your experiences, Natasha.
1: Well, one of the things actually as you're talking that I found myself thinking about is uh, uh, like the, the pull into forensic work. And that didn't happen in a vacuum. Like I didn't wake up and was just interested in forensic work. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Uh, I also had an interest in going to law school. I didn't realize that you did too. (laughs) (laughs) But I remember there was a law school on my undergrad campus. I remember seeing the folks going into um, the law school and they looked incredibly depressed and unhappy. Mm -hmm. And and So in my head, I was thinking, I don't know if I want that. And that's kind of how I stumbled into psychology, the psychology piece. But um, yeah, I think it's meaningful, the pull that I had at the time. And I remember Sandy pointing this out to me, like, like, why are you interested in doing and working in presence and doing like this forensic work? And is it actually bringing you closer to is there some sort of guilt that's underneath it
0: Mm.
1: and yeah which is like a whole other conversation probably but
3: yeah well that reminds me though of like even thinking about the decision to choose like psychology over social work for example um you know and i i don't mean this in any particular way but like the stereotype that i had was White people go into psychology. Black people go into social work. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I want to go against that stereotype. And I knew I would be incurring a lot of debt to do that. Like, I knew that. And people tried to talk me out of it. They were like, well, it would be cheaper to be a social worker. It would be cheaper for you. And I felt like, you know, this is a way that the system keeps us in our place, so Mm -hmm. to speak. You know um not that i didn't know excellent social workers but like people tried to talk me out of it and i'm like but if you look at the demographic makeup of these fields it's you know at least in present day 2011 it was mostly black women going into social work and white women going into psychology and i think that the forensic piece is also very related to that like you know why might we feel more pulled to systems roles you know where maybe we feel like we can make more impact or have more power or make change in people's lives who look like us Mm -hmm. in fundamental ways that they need so i think you know for me that definitely relates to this forensics
1: piece (laughs) Yeah. And, and the way that I ended up at um, the group practice, like making this because I was very much in community mental health and like teaching and um, it was serving my community. It was working within my community. But when I graduated with my doctorate, I had accrued between undergrad and graduate school four hundred and ten thousand dollars of student loan debt and it was not possible to survive. I remember helping one of my patients fill out their Medicaid form for food stamps, like a, med, a food stamp form, rather. And I was familiar with doing it because I had to fill one out for myself. I'm filling one out for my damn self, like with a doctor degree. Um, and so I, I had to leap. I had to do something different because uh, I couldn't afford to continue doing community mental health something had to be done. So that's how I ended up at a group practice, like doing this kind of for-profit stuff. But the reason I think, cause and I keep referring to this group practice is because our strategies around, at least what comes up for me or what's so clear about our experience there is like our strategy around navigating that space and how, um, how different they were. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and what it means. And this is, I mean, as I thought about sitting with the two of you, with um, you Vanessa and Kacera, and but I was thinking about like, what does it mean to be a person of color navigating like these white spaces? Um, at least what does it look like in my life? And, and this group practice, I think, was a perfect example of that.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say that we both sort of ended up there for reasons related to survival, right? Like, it was either I find a job here or I move back to New York. Like, those were my options. And I needed something to pay the rent. (laughs) Um, Otherwise, I couldn't continue to stay here. Um, And so you know there was survival in that and then of course as you alluded to things that we did related to survival within that practice that were very different Um, yeah and maybe it would be helpful for me to start because how you ended up thinking about (laughs) What you were doing was very much related to my arrival there, I think, Mm -hmm. in some ways. Um, Because I had decided, this was really funny, I was like, I'm going into these interviews with my hair curly, you know, I'm not going to worry about like straightening it or whatever. And like, if they are interested in me and accept me as I am, um, as a black woman, then this might be a good place to be. And at the time I ignored, I didn't really ignore, I I sort of rationalized the way red flags, like when I asked uh, in my interview about what statistics they were keeping on demographics. And the answer I got was like, well, you know, you know, we don't really have a formal system for keeping track of that yet. And I was like, Ooh, you know, but I was like, I need a job. (laughs) So I was like, well, maybe that's, you know, like a small, small potatoes compared to what they're telling me I will be able to do here, which is create my own caseload and do assessment and all of these things that I really did wanna do. And the people that I met, the other clinicians, they seem like great people to work with. And so I ended up getting hired, but I was doing that under the pretense that I would be as authentically me as possible while I was there uh, which included even how I wear my hair um, or standing up for things that were important to me um, or expressing concerns when I saw something going on systemically that was problematic but that caused that caused some issues for me um, and, and oh, I'm sorry. we met uh, I think for the first time at a annual company meeting <laughs> and maybe you want to take it from there
1: oh no what i remember is Casera raising her hand in this meeting and saying so i don't even remember what the feedback was but it was something about race and it was something very transparent and honest and i remember trying to stand up and turn around and see who the hell is talking like oh,
3: that i remember <laughs> what it was <laughs> i remember I remember exactly what it was because we were talking about um, the election and I felt like they were talking about it in a, such a way that they had assumed that everyone in the room had not voted for Trump. And I pointed that out. I was like, you know, I feel like this conversation is making the assumption that there are everyone agrees with everyone in here. And if we're really gonna have a real conversation, we have to acknowledge that that's probably not true. So that was the comment that I made. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and and, um, and when I heard that, I remember thinking, oh, this is incredibly honest. And uh, <laughs> who is this? Who is this speaking like this? But then also, um, because I'm not making assumptions that the white folks I'm sharing space with are believing the things that I'm believing or are uh, um, have similar thoughts on politics that I might have or something along these lines. And, and even as I'm, we're talking about this right now, I'm thinking about the overlap between how we navigated this workspace but also navigating psychoanalytic spaces too. Mm-hmm. And um, so I remember like cutting straightening my hair so because Sarah wore her hair curly I wore my hair straight I cut off my nails because I wear long nails um and so I cut off my nails I try to like whitewash myself as much as possible even if you look at my picture from when I was hired at at the organization it doesn't even look like me Um, that's how like whitewashed I um I, it was necessary. I felt was necessary, at least, to navigate the space, to gain entry into the space, which I needed, or at least, which I needed. I needed the money. Like I needed um, to work. And but as as I continued in the organization, that that sort of whitewashing continued. And I think that this is part of uh, part of at least my experience of being a, a black woman in these spaces, whether we're talking yeah anyways the whitewashing sort of continued and yeah yeah and i think it until casera was left was it like left like i was back yeah Yeah. (laughs) i was fired (laughs) yeah yeah
3: Yeah. 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 well because it was after or maybe it was during the time um because I had had to retake my licensure exam, like, three times. Um, and there's an article that I wish was, like, widely circulated about the abysmal fail rates for um, people of color um, for this exam, and to the to the degree that it keeps us out of the field at a disproportionately higher rate than white people. Um, And I I obsessed about this article because we have to study this concept called disparate impact for the EPPP. And that exam is an example of disparate impact. And it just bothered me so much. Um, But yes, I was was fired um, because it was sort of like, if you don't pass your exam the second time, um, then we'll fire you. Or um, if you pass, but your license isn't in hand by such date, we'll fire you that was what i was told and i wasn't offered any help i wasn't offered to be connected with other people in the company who might have been also studying or struggling or if i needed materials i had to start a gofundme to like have enough money to get additional tutoring and studying for the the third time i took it because i was unemployed by that point um but we had met um Natasha and I and some other colleagues I guess for dinner or something and I think it was at that dinner maybe or sometime I can't remember exactly where you told me about something. I can't remember what the context was, but about how you were like, oh, yeah, like Some or someone said like I'm not gonna like Sarah's not gonna last like much longer than a year here Do you
1: remember this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, because the Um, the like what I understand about navigating white spaces is the culture there's a certain culture and when you step outside of that culture aka when you're actually being like yourself or when when you're being yourself that's what it feels like for me then you can expect to be hit with like some sort of resistance um, and and that resistance can result in you being pushed out of it and so i like the honesty like transparency genuineness that you sort of brought into the space i understood that to mean that you're probably not going to be here very long because people don't like that um people as in like folks who are in positions of power yeah and uh, yeah i think it was like nine months a year or something like that later
3: yeah i was there like um... 11 months, maybe. I didn't make it to the year. Yeah. Um, and I remember thinking about that because I was called by people in positions of power. Stubborn, difficult, you know, I didn't want to go with the flow. I didn't want to do what needed to be done before I could get to a position where they would actually let me work the way I wanted to. Um, there was a lot of that and it was difficult for me because I struggled with, well, I know that continuing to be my authentic self means that my clients are going to end up without a therapist, which is exactly what happened. And they had nowhere to send my kids because no one in the company was qualified to see them. You know, I specialize in working with autism and various um, mm. developmental delays and diversely abled children, and there was no one who felt like they could take that up. So a lot of those people went on wait lists. Um, and yeah, <laughs> I felt a lot of guilt and, and shame and confusion because I was like, well, you know, I know what I could do if I really wanted to stay here. And I got that message from my supervisor at the time. I feel like she said, I feel like you don't want to fight for this, was what I w- was told. Um, and I was like, I want to fight to be oppressed? Like, that's what you're telling me. So, you know, I, I kind of knew that this was going to happen. Um, and I would have preferred to leave on my own terms. But, you know, that's how things shook out. And yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh no, I was
1: just gonna like compare that to my experience of doing the whitewashing from the beginning Mm -hmm. of like not challenging or being my full self in the space. And then by the time I said, okay, I'm leaving, I've got like a goodbye card and like these extra time with HR to discuss what my experience had been like, like a very different experience of transitioning out of of ending there, of leaving, mm-hmm. um, and I think that I think that that was in part because I played this game that mm-hmm. um, that they wanted wanted me to play, and then or wanted us to play, and then afterwards, after leaving, I went into private practice, and I don't think I experienced i didn't get to fully experience what it meant to my me i didn't get to fully be me until that experience of going into private practice and so what i what all that has meant is like writing so i began writing and i've published a couple articles um and see working with folks who i find Myself drawn towards and interested in working with, um, like finding my voice more like fully within the psychoanalytic community, presenting at conferences and this sort of thing. Um, and yeah, I don't I don't think my like full self was allowed to flourish until I went into private practice, which was two thousand eighteen, just a couple of years ago. Um, yeah.
3: Yeah. It and it's funny because um so that was what December for you. 2019. Mm-hmm. 18. Yeah. yeah, 18. Um lord time. <laughs> <laughs> um and I had been let go, fired in August. I was unemployed for 6 months. And during that time, I was like How do I start a practice with no capital? Um, And I was meeting with you um, and other um, BIPOC clinicians because one was also starting, you know, well, left the same company (laughs) and, and starting her practice. And we were sharing resources with each other. And I remember being in these conversations like, oh my gosh, I'm starting this from a totally different place. Like I'm not licensed yet. I need to get paneled. Uh, so the transition was very, very rough. And I wasn't sure I, I, like, what getting new clients would look like. Um, and I think this speaks to the relationship and the work that I had done with people but at least two thirds of the people that I worked with at the, at the group practice found me. They hunted me down <laughs> and they found me. And so I started with people that I used to see, um, but it was on a hope and a prayer pretty much. And then I also was seeking out part-time work. Um, so I did end up um, getting employed with the juvenile court clinic as well. Um, because I still wasn't entirely sure I wanted to start a full-time private practice, um, but I still wanted to do that assessment work. So in a way, I still ended up in a forensic context, but I feel like that work is happening more on my own terms. There's still systems stuff, but I'm, I'm trusted. My expertise is valued, I was put in a leadership role like four months into my time there um, as a testing coordinator. Uh, And I feel it's been just a very different experience to know that your training and your expertise and your labor is valued. Um, And also feeling free in my own practice to work the way I'd like uh, and conceptualize and, you know, think about I felt more free to think Um, and I think it's important for me to add that I had gotten really sick in the last um, few months of my time at the group practice Um, my migraines which had not been around for almost two years had flared up really badly I was in paralyzing pain I was laying down on my couch in between sessions just to like catch some time before I'd have to sit in pain through another 45 minute session. So it really, the environment of and the trauma of being in that place took its toll on me. And different from Natasha, I actually kind of retreated from the psychoanalytic community during the last couple of years because I felt like I just couldn't continue to deal with abusive systems. Um, and I'm only sort of more recently getting back into things um, so, I represented at the American Psychoanalytic this year after being gone for two years. And I'm getting back into writing. But I had to exit for a bit because I was pretty traumatized by that experience.
2: Thank you so much for sharing these stories. It's really um, moving and powerful. Um, and we def- I definitely want to link to this article about the EPPP um, because that sounds really, really important for people to be able to access um, and any other resources that you want to share. Um, but I find it most frustrating in the psychoanalytic community because the theory, you know, is supposed to be about helping people find their kind of individual way of being and speaking and understanding themselves in the world and yet these like systems and these institutions the hierarchies in some place are so normative, so exclusionary, they're like completely the opposite of what at least I see the theory is supposed to be about um, do you have any thoughts about that? Do you want to start, Natasha? <laughs> <laughs> I have so many
3: thoughts No, I'll go ahead. I'll let you start. Yeah, I mean, it it goes back to what I was saying about how I felt that psychoanalysis gave language to my experience of migration. And I wrote about that, too, uh, in my application to be a fellow of the American, um, which I was from 2016 to 2017. Uh, I wrote about that, um, really feeling drawn to how it was about movement and exploration and freedom and finding that language to be so valuable, even if it's not necessarily language that I'm using with clients, but it, it, you know, my theory of mind. And I think about how, you know, many immigrants are drawn to object relations, language, and their reasons for that. Right. Um, But my time in the spaces, I witnessed a lot of, racism a lot of misogyny i mean there were times where i would try to um approach speakers that i wanted to talk to and old white like you know psychoanalysts men usually were would step right in front of me and and then just take up the space and i would miss my opportunity to speak with someone that i wanted to speak with or people would say things like well all all women want to be subjugated You know i'd hear things like that at conferences or um someone would say well you know my niece got raped or whatever and you know she deserved it because of how she was dressed and these are the things that people say in these spaces and and you try to challenge them and then other people Usually other women, white women, lean over and they'll do something like, oh, you, are you sure you want to say something? I've had that happen. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, you know, you just have to be careful. Well, what do I have to be careful about? Well, you could lose referrals. You know, so, so, so that's the... And, and so these things are allowed to play out. And we elevate these people who are engaging in this violence, really, I, I, is I think is the only thing to call it and they never get challenged because they're venerated and and they're highly you know acclaimed and well written but it's violence and abuse of power and that's what made it really hard for me to stick in those in these spaces and why in the interest of self-preservation in lieu of the trauma I experienced leaving the practice I felt like I couldn't do it.
1: Um I've just found my. Vanessa, can you
2: repeat what the question was? Um, just any thoughts about how like psychoanalytic theory, like the, the theory is, seems to me to be so like about finding your own voice and individuality and like not judging anyone's like sexuality or preferences or way anybody wants developed. Yet the institutions are so like dogmatic and rigid and racist and oppressive and misogynist and just like, uh, completely normative and they're like totally the opposite and they exclude people or even what you spoke to about like having all of this student loan debt you know I also came out of school with like a couple hundred thousand dollars with a student loan debt and then like psychoanalytic training on top of that like for me for example I'm like working in the hospital you know for my paycheck from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. then going to my analysis then seeing my analytic patients in the evenings for like five dollars a session while I'm training then going to classes at the institute from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m., you know, and then, you know, having my uh, supervisor at some point tell me, like, I, how do we know that you're dedicated enough to this? You know, like, I wanted to, like, you know, change my hours or whatever. They're like, well, you're not valuing your training. It's like, what else do you want me to do? You know, it's like, it's like impossible. Like, how are people supposed to train and, like, have a real life uh, in that kind of situation?
1: Mm-hmm. And I even think about, um, the, like the lack of representation and the impact that that had on me is I could not seeing someone not seeing, uh, like in, in a, Analysts, or someone who looked like me or spaces where there are other folks who were looking like me. So it was difficult for me to imagine myself even going, doing it or like how to do it, or, um, yeah. And actually this reminds me of that, oh gosh, what is it? It was the, oh my gosh. Um, document I guess it's called a documentary that came out in like 2011 2012 and with the it's with the black black psycho let us speak mm-hmm. yeah and I think that that was probably the first time that that was one of the things that I needed to understand that oh there is a space for me here um and I remember the first time like I met Kirkland Bonds and I was like, oh my gosh, it is so nice to meet you. Can I take a picture with you? Like, can you? <laughs> but I think I think that that kind of, that was so important to, for me, for like my own, to understand that that I could be in this space. Um, I think it's hard to even answer your, your question though, Vanessa, because I uh, there's such power within the psychoanalytic theory. I think it could be utilized to understand, um, to make sense. I've been able to utilize it to make sense of my own experience, and I think that it can be utilized to make for other people in similar ways, and even to make sense of like racism and sexism and, and these sorts of things. Um, so there's there's such like opportunity or like power there. Um, it's just the systems that we're in, yes, are so, can be so harmful and um, I don't think we,
3: yeah. Well, not, not only can be right, but they are. Are, yeah. And, and even Vanessa's example of like, are you dedicated? I hear that a lot from analytic people. So even when I was having recent conversations, trying to like reconvince myself that spending my money and valuable time to be oppressed in order to learn something is worth it. The, the, the lip service that I got was like, well, if you're dedicated enough, if you really want this, then you'll do it. And it feels like really icky really icky it's like it's like it's like an abuser (laughs) and it's the only thing i can like is the only parallel i can think of especially in my work with sexual trauma you know that, that that really icky like if you really want this then you'll do it and how many analysts say that to those of us who are thinking about training as if as if because i'm worried that i'm going to be oppressed that means that i'm not interested enough and and I find that to be so I guess disgusting is the, really the only word for it that I can think of um, and, it, and it's a way of making you question yourself it's sort of crazy making you know that that abusers do to make you think that you're somehow responsible for or this is somehow your fault um and I, I find that to be really difficult to contend with.
2: Yeah, and I think that's why I've been I've been drawn more towards the Lacanians because, you know, Lacan split off from the IPA and I found that since I left the American psychoanalytic and stopped dealing with the IPA and just started speaking more with people that are Lacanian or just working outside of that kind of system, Um, And doing psychoanalysis, more like independent study, like getting their own analysis, getting supervision, analyzing people that way and studying it kind of more independently. Um, It's been a lot more fruitful for me, at least. What are you all doing now?
0: Well, well,
1: real (laughs) quick before I answer that, I was just thinking about, um, what you were able to do to navigate that. And I was thinking, I guess what I was pausing kind of reflecting on, um, was like the, I don't like this, I feel like I haven't even had the, um. like so much of the, my resources, my energy has been spent on surviving, That it's only until recently that I've been able to find ways of beginning to thrive. And until um, and so finding, and yeah, I'm still like processing this, but I'm also, if we can pause, I, I don't know if this is okay, because I'm also reflecting on what this experience has been for the last hour. And um, and I'm noticing. Is this okay for me to say right now?
2: Yeah, of course.
1: Because oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I totally am not answering your question. It
2: doesn't but, matter.
1: <laughs> you ask like two questions, and I'm like, I'm not gonna answer that one. <laughs> <You're>
2: not <laughs> <at> you not?
3: <laughs> yeah.
1: No, I, I, I would totally, absolutely answer. It. Um, and I was just reflecting on, like. Okay, when we started, I, so coming into this, it was difficult for me to, like, sit down and, like, really reflect on, oh, okay, how do, what is this time going to look like? And then I was like, oh, I should probably sit down and, like, really put out an outline. I was like, no, don't put out an outline, because that's just your anxiety trying to, like, interfere with the process, like, be in the process. But I think as I'm sitting through the process now, part of where some of that anxiety was coming from is... Uh, like, not having platforms to talk about what my experience, at least, or, like, the experience of folks who look like me has been within the psychoanalytic community, like, what our journeys have been, and so having a space like this feels really important, and, um, but because I know it doesn't happen often, a part of me is like, oh. Uh, like, oh, I want to do a really good job and I want to do it, like, right. And, like, all of this um, anxiety begins to come up. But if I can, like, move that to the side for a a moment, I'm not going to analyze it right now. I'll just move it to the side. (laughs) (laughs) And I think I do want to name that... I appreciate the platform for like Cassera and I to share some of this experience because I, it wasn't until like Black Psychoanalytic Speak that I began hearing voices, hearing like the stories, the experiences from folks of color, from Black folks within the psychoanalytic field, and I, I know that our journeys can look very different from like our white counterparts and. And I do also know that some of my story has overlaps with like my white colleagues, but a, a nice chunk of it doesn't. And um, I don't. And so the question you were asking earlier that that um, you had answered and Casero's answer, and I was finding diff- I was having difficulty finding like my own voice with it, was because I didn't feel like I was actually able to become like a psychoanalytically minded person until more recently and that's because up until recently i was in survival mode and i don't think um i didn't so i didn't have even have the space to study in the way that like i would have wanted to study or to read in the way that i would have wanted to read um because i was working community mental health and teaching and doing all this and bringing in like $50,000 a year doing all that living in Boston with $410,000 of debt and so just like fundamental needs weren't being met um and and for me working like having my own practice so oh I guess I'm answering your question now this is what I do now (laughs) is I like I've had this private practice for the a solo practice for the last couple of years 2020 is when i um had planned to expand to a group practice this thing covid happened and like threw some shit off but now it looks like uh january 2021 i'll be expanding to a group practice um and it wasn't until this period that i think i have been able to really step into the shoes of um being in like more of an analyst, like, more on that path to, to, to that, um, yeah, and I just felt like that was, like, important for me to acknowledge, because, acknowledge as we've, like, been sitting and talking together, because I'm, like, where is this anxiety coming from, Mm. and, and I think that that's part of where it comes from, for me, so, yeah, um, but, yeah, but my group practice, so, I, uh, my practice focuses on serving working with um, folks of color particularly women of color and i am expanding the practice to continue doing some of that work but to also do more like support and coaching for clinicians particularly clinicians of color who are interested in opening their own private practices and because i really do see like the shift into private practice and like working for yourself as a way for um, at least it's been an important step into my own liberation
3: yeah yeah um no i appreciate you ac- naming and acknowledging all of that there aren't many spaces to do this <laughs> and we we may have had these, this conversation between the two of us Um, Natasha and I, but we haven't really talked about it. Uh, So it's nice to do that, but also brings up so many things. Um, And I myself obviously am continuing in private practice part time. I haven't yet decided about whether or not I would want to expand. I think it's probably coming (laughs) because I get so many inquiries um, because there is a need. People are looking for practices where they can feel safe. Um, not just, you know, finding BIPOC clinicians, but also clinicians who are, you know, um, affirming and um, in all aspects of identity. You know, I get so many stories from various folks in the LGBTQ plus community about the trauma they've experienced at at, from other therapists who have really um, ignored important parts of their identity or, and just all kinds of really terrible things. I get lots of emails that are just really terrible stories. And even if expanding means I'm training other people to be more sensitive in their work, that would be the work that's important to me um, is creating more of those spaces. Um, I'm also still working in the courts, obviously. So continuing to do assessment as a part of, I think just, I, I, I need to do that. (laughs) Um, but I'm also doing ongoing Rorschach research, um, with a mentor of mine in the area, um, Anthony Bram, um, and some others on, um, form dominance coding on the Rorschach so we're doing some of that work so I'm doing research as well I'm getting back into that and hopefully getting back into some more uh, analytic writings Um, I came out of graduate school with eight publications and haven't written since so uh, I've really been silenced in a way (laughs) in the last few years and so similar to what Natasha was saying like finding liberation finding my voice and the freedom to think more
2: clearly. And I think the point that you made as well like not being able to be your yourself was made, making you sick, you know, made you sick. Yeah. Um, and being in that system and and also the fact that when you are able to be more of yourself and be more authentic that's going to come across with your patience as well. Like I found like in different ways but the more i've been able to be myself in, in other ways um you know it, it helps other people resonate with it and it helps them also to be able to be themselves more you know absolutely yeah
3: and it's the most fun part of my work is like being me with people and how that helps them heal like that's just fun that's it. it's it's so it fills up the cup
1: (laughs) and it's like this new privilege yeah this is not yeah this is all very new being not cutting your hair not cutting your nails like just showing up in whatever head wrap you want to wear that is all very new
2: (laughs) yeah i'm enjoying it Yeah. yeah absolutely absolutely is there anything else you wanted to be sure to mention Um Well, I guess I
3: just want to mention that like, yes, this is all very new and very great and very fun, but it certainly has been challenging being a therapist during a pandemic. So I think it's important to name that uh, we are as as just as clinicians under an enormous amount of different kind of pressure right now. Uh, and I just want to put that message out there to any clinician who's listening. You know, we're doing uh, a really, difficult task um but we are here (laughs) um and i'm on instagram uh i started my very uh social justice activist oriented platform uh i guess 10 or 12 weeks ago because i was going crazy with feeling like i was stuck in my office and couldn't do anything um so i'm at ct counseling and i've been trying to um claim the activist side of my therapist identity uh during the last few months uh so something
2: to mention mm-hmm. yeah, and i'll link to that
1: um i guess what would i anything that i would want to mention the my reflection from earlier is probably what i wanted to mention um and, but I'm also glad that you named, like, I couldn't even, I couldn't even talk about 2020. I just went from 2018 to, yeah, we doing some stuff right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, so I'm glad that you, like, named that. The, this last year has been, um, yeah, it's been a lot. So, yeah. Um, that, and I'll also sort of like toss in there that if there are any, particularly any women of color, or folks of color who are interested um, in private practice, interested in like looking more into um, that sort of work, that leap, that very scary leap where we don't see many of us doing that kind of stuff, um, to feel free to reach out. to. Me, I mean, I do consulting work, but I'm also open to like having more informal conversations with folks. Um, And so, yeah, and I can. um, uh, My business is and still we rise, so you can look that up, Natasha Holmes. Uh, Yeah, so I'll toss that out there.
2: Wonderful, and of course. Anytime there's anything you want to talk about, either together or individually, you are always welcome to come on and talk about whatever you're doing or whatever you want. Thank you. This thank
3: has you. Been, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for creating the space. Yes. Thank you, Vanessa. Yeah, we didn't say this, but maybe we can put it in the notes. But we're both a part of the same steering committee <laughs> for um, reflective um, spaces, reflective spaces, material places, material places Boston. Yes. yeah, and so we're frequently working together, <laughs> um, yes. and so that's probably also part of the flow as well. Um, and we are working on uh, this year <laughs> decolonizing psychotherapy. That's the subject of uh, yeah. our programming. Yeah, so that's important to say.
1: Yes, that is important to say because reflective spaces, material places, Boston, which is a um, there's two like, chapters of Reflective Size Material Places that I'm aware of, at least, the one in San Francisco and one in Boston. And this year, the one in Boston is focused on, or the theme for the year is decolonizing um, psychotherapy, psychoanalysis?
3: Psychotherapy, yeah.
1: Psychotherapy. And so we um, put on this monthly, like, uh, events, every other month, rather, events. And... It works out to be every other month. I think it's like four times a year or something. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that is that is an important thing to to notice. I, I, I forget how many ways our stuff overlaps, Casera I, I didn't know. know the forensic overlap in the beginning until we were talking today. <laughs> and then we have this I remembered. With, ah, <laughs> I didn't. I've like so removed myself from forensic stuff, from that, my colonizers. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> And, but there's that, there's, like, some overlap with the grad school, there's where we cross paths, like, at the group practice, there's what we do now, yeah, Um, so, yeah, so, thank you.
2: (laughs) That's wonderful. No, and, and, yeah, exactly, that's why I'm glad to have this space, too, because, like, like, Going through this kind of whole experience, it would have been so helpful to hear other people kind of talking about how difficult this can be and all these kinds of um, issues that come up, you know, because really there's none of that is addressed in any level of training, all the way from psychology, grad school, psychoanalytic training. I mean, nobody talks about any of this. So, Yeah, absolutely.
0: Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Drs. Kassara Diet and Natasha Holmes. For more, please visit the text accompanying this episode for links to their work, as well as to the documentary, Black Psychoanalysts Speak, and to the article on the P Licensing Exam and its Discrimination Against Minorities. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. From Chapart Books, 2019. For more, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast by visiting our Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N n.com forward slash V-A-N-E-S-S-A two three C-A-R-L. Your support is greatly appreciated. For more information, you can also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. Dreams. Let's see, Let's see them. Let's see them. There were many small roads going higher up. His left hand, as if deciding how to answer his question. Even though it was clear that everything about this was a surprise, walked for hours and hours, usually up to a little cabin, high up, where some yogis took students for short term retreats, the sun seemingly always shone. The forests were lush and dense. The air was so filled with oxygen. The ministers only sighed. Metabolic system had on a holiday from school, arrived. Illusion would only be deemed to victor. Question allows him or herself. I'm alone. It's no trick It's just that I have awfully new foundations Looking out at the valley beneath them They were all struck by the beauty Beneath them they could see The neat little village Above them, the range just continued. Strain of Lucy's illness and its horrible phases is telling on me. I am overexcited and weary, and I need rest. 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 Happily, von Helsing has not summoned me, so I need not forgo my sleep. Tonight, I could not well do without it. Disgruntled new arrivals claiming, took walks together, from thee, come, drifted into a little nap. This was A, from the Apparently, something was brewing. She was happy about it. If anything, he needed to be grounded brought back to Earth in a way. That was the least way to wait a day or two before starting. It was all very ridiculous, but I did not feel comfortable. However, there was business to be done, and I could allow some semi-wild dogs joined as they sat down to their picnic. He patted them, although he knew they were probably flea infested. And the wolf. There was a strange and horrible gurgling in her throat. Then she fell over as if struck with lightning and her head hit my forehead and made me dizzy for a moment or two. The room and all around seemed to spin around. I kept my hello. With you, it's beautiful. The very same. Crystal clear transmission. Yesterday evening, he shook his human onlookers. A big ship hovering. How could you miss that?